Hi, everyone. Welcome to the fifth Geopolitical Economy Hour, the fortnightly show about the polit political and geopolitical economy of our times. I'm Radhika Desai. And I'm Michael Edson. So this is our third and final show on the theme of de-dollarization, based on our work, particularly on geopolitical economy that I wrote in 2013 and, and super imperialism that Michael wrote some decades ago and has recently reissued. Uh, and uh, so based on my geopolitical economy and Michael's super imperialism and also, of course, our um, uh, our article, which we co-wrote called Beyond the Dollar Creditocracy, a Geopolitical Economy. Um, as many of you know, we have structured our discussion around some 10 questions. So as you see in this slide, uh, they are, they're all here. And uh, in the first show, we did answer the first five questions. In the second show, we answered the next three, which is uh, how did the sterling system end? What really happened between the wars and the, do uh, the dollar system uh, uh, between 1945 and 1971, how it worked, etc. So in this show, we are going to take up the last two questions, which is, uh, which are, was there really a Bretton Woods II after 1971? And finally, what is the crisis today? What are its main dimensions? So uh, that's what we are going to do. So so let, let me just uh, start off by just saying one thing about uh, the first question, which is, was there really a Bretton Woods II after 1971? Now, the most important thing to know about this is that the very a label, Bretton Woods too, involves a boast. And let me also explain that by, by pointing out that actually by calling it a boast, I'm drawing attention to a very important fact about, uh, uh, about the whole discourse around dollar hegemony and so on. And that fact is that there is an absolute industry of writers on dollar and dollar hegemony and US hegemony and so on, whose business it is to constantly talk up the dollar. No matter what's happening on the ground, Whatever the conclusion they draw from whatever is happening is that the, that the dollar system is here to stay and here forever. And so if the dollar goes up, they say, oh, look at the dollar is our high and everybody wants the dollar. If the dollar goes down, they say, well, see, people want the dollar even though it's down. So this is the kind of weird reasoning that you see. And of course, Michael and I have unpacked a lot of it already. And in this show, we will continue to unpack it. So basically, the boast about so-called Bretton Woods too, that is to say the dollar system after 1971, is that this is this was hegemony without tears, that the United States had been freed from the burden of uh, uh, linking the dollar to gold. Michael, I think you have some points on this as well. Well, the United States aimed at uh, not wanting, not losing any more of its gold because gold is how it had altered its uh, control of, over international finance since the 1920s. Uh, the U.S. also wanted to keep its veto power in the IMF and the World Bank, uh, and it's continued to be led, uh, the World Bank certainly, by U.S. military strategists, and uh, the IMF has in fact uh, just continued American foreign policy. So uh, the story is that what was new is that the United States was able to pay in IOUs of treasury uh, securities, uh, and which now we all know really are never uh, going to be paid because they can't be repaid any more than the government is going to retire the paper currency, the dollar bills that you have uh, in your uh, wallet. Uh, what uh, the irony and the internal contradiction here is that uh, this success in maintaining American power and American policy enabled the United States to become, well, we can just say it, 
parasitic. Uh, it enabled it to deindustrialize. It enabled the United States to get so much uh, 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 revenue from its foreign investments, from its foreign lending, uh, and from uh, its control of the foreign trade system and the tariff system that uh, it was able to uh, deindustrialize and actually become dependent on other countries for essentials. Uh, just the opposite of what Ed did, uh, uh, tried to make other countries uh, uh, do. And uh, this was a kind of poisoned chalice. Uh, it left the United States in what we now know is an untenable position. How can it uh, live off the surplus exports and payments of other countries while itself is being deindustrialized? Uh, what is the basis for its power, if not uh, ultimately military? Um, any breakaway from the U.S. economy is going to leave it isolated, we now can see, and unable to provide for its own basic needs. So it needs to have an international financial system that actually works as a kind of neo-colonialism, a neo-imperialism. You can call it financial colonialism. And financial imperialism uh, that is driving right now other countries out of this uh, U.S. orbit, as uh, we've talked about today. And their withdrawal isn't simply from uh, the dollar as a currency. It's from the foreign trade system, the foreign investment system, and the foreign debt system that the United States has used uh, since, 19, uh, since uh, 1971 uh, to bolster its uh, international position. So exactly, Michael, you know, it's really important, you know, we both we both tend to emphasize in our writings and our writings together that this is the key. If you want to run a system like the dollar system, what you're going to do is exact a price from your productive economy. You're going to deindustrialize it. You're going to make it weaker. Now, if the U.S. economy has become reliant and particularly, of course, the U.S elites, the U.S. ruling classes have become reliant on an unproductive, predatory, speculative financial system. And if that financial system on which the dollar is based is essentially unraveling, then you can easily say that you can easily see that the United States is in for a rather big crisis, a rather big reckoning, and it's going to be hard. But let me also say one other thing very quickly. If you, the United States has always, as we've emphasized in previous shows, this whole desire to install the dollar as the world's money comes out of a certain interpretation, a certain wrong interpretation that American foreign policy elites have made throughout this period, going back to the early 20th century, about how the sterling system ran. They simply did not uh, did not see that the sterling system ran on the basis of finance, but they have sought without an empire. Sorry, the sterling system ran on the basis of empire, and they have sought to 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 emulate that without an empire. And this is what. Uh, and even with an empire, the sterling system was not sufficiently uh, stable, and the dollar system is even less so. But the point, the important point, is that. As soon as the UK started essentially running the sterling system, it also set the stage for the deindustrialization of the UK. And you are seeing a repeat of that process a century later in the case of the United States. And, and so in, this is really quite a serious 
point. So, so I think we've given you a, a, a sort of a broad conception of the contradictions, but it tells you also why we need to look at the reality of the dollar system and its contradictions. Because you see, if we're going to talk about de-dollarization, then if we don't understand why the dollar system, how the dollar system was contradictory, we will think of de-dollarization as something that has hit the dollar system out of the blue. In reality, it is the maturation of the contradictions of the dollar system. And if you see, for example, in the next two slides, I'm just going to show you the, the, um, uh, the, 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 the value of the dollar declining. So, Paul, if you would show, yes, the dollar since 1971, you see here that there is a, a huge rise in the dollar in the early 1980s, which is the Volcker shock. And since then, you see, although there are ups and downs, there is a secular downturn in the value of the dollar with the stock market bubble. Where, where, with the stock market bubble, the dollar went up. But funnily enough, all the money coming into the United States after the housing bubble, all the money that was attracted into the United States, massive quantities of money, were not able to prevent the downward slide of the dollar. And since then, quantitative easing, et cetera, quantitative easing one, two, quantitative easing infinity, et cetera, have let the dollar go up. But now you see what they began to do um, uh, in the last decade or so is they have rebased the whole system. So the two peaks here that you see in the previous graph, they are valued at about, uh, they are valued at about 80. And in the new graph, you see that they are valued at about 100. So they basically are basing the dollar up again. So you do not see the broad secular decline. But believe me, there has been a secular decline in the value of the dollar. And and this is despite all the efforts made by the by the Federal Reserve to essentially run the casinos of various asset bubbles, which would have brought the dollar in, uh, sorry, brought money into the dollar and therefore kept the dollar of the value up. Because remember, our argument has been, uh, my argument in geopolitical economy, Michael's argument in various writings, and also our argument in the, 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 the beyond the dollar creditocracy is that since 1971, essentially the United States has sought to make the dollar system function by counteracting the Triffin dilemma's effect uh, by expanding purely financial demand for the dollar, not economic demand, not, not investment demand, not uh, trade demand, but purely financialized speculative demand for the dollar. And this system essentially uh, is now unraveling. And just to remind everybody, the Triffin dilemma is simply the assertion of Robert Triffin going back to the late 1950s when he pointed out that the United States effort to try to provide the dollar, so, so, try to provide the world with liquidity by running deficits was essentially deeply contradictory because the more liquidity it provided, therefore the greater the deficits, the greater would be the downward pressure on the dollar. And many people, especially those who are part of the industry of the dollar boosters, they, they hate talking about the Triffin dilemma. And, in, and if they ever talk about it, they say, oh, well, after the dollar's link to gold was broken, it's no longer operating. That has simply not been true. It has continued to operate. And the United States has made great exertions, and we will discuss them all uh, in some detail now. But it has made great exertions to try to 
counteract this uh, effect, uh, particularly by, as I say, uh, uh, allowing huge specu uh, speculative bubbles to be uh, inflated in the dollar financial system, so that upon, you know investors, investors, you know speculators would come into and bring dollars, uh, bring funds into the dollar system, so as to keep demand for the dollar up. So that's the key thing. The Triffin dilemma never stopped operating. And 2008 was a big peak for that. Well, by 2008, what's important is that uh, what we've called dollarization was really what now uh, the U.S. State Department calls the rules-based international order, meaning rules uh, that it set. By 2008, almost every country had managed to extricate itself from the International Monetary Fund. I think Turkey was the only country that was still remaining uh, as a client of the IMF because it was widely recognized that the IMF's medicine uh, is of austerity actually is a kind of poison. It's not medicine at all. And uh, the World Bank's idea of development was basically underdevelopment. It was basically dependency on the United States uh, exporters, especially its uh, farm exports uh, and creditors, instead of creating their own money, instead of producing their own food, instead of producing their own uh, products. And so uh, even the, uh, what uh, Triffin neglected to point out is that the U.S. deficit uh, he isolated that from the whole world system, and the world system was uh, designed to make other countries uh, dependent, and that was why the dollar didn't go down uh, anywhere near uh, what uh, Triffin's so-called dilemma uh, uh, implied, because a dilemma was solved by uh, uh, what we're calling monetary imperialism. Yeah, so, you know, one of the uh, other broad realities that we have to look at is that in this period, that is to say the period since 1971, the United States financial system, which had been made into one of the most highly regulated financial systems, thanks to the Depression era uh, regulations that were brought in in the 1930s, this financial system, and therefore this financial system had been kept focused on productive investment. Uh, in the period since 1971, you see its gradual transformation into a syst financial system, which is the opposite of what a really productively dynamic country needs. So uh, in any case, the, 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 the dominant story, the story told by the dollar boosters is that, you know, after 1971, the United States and the dollar enjoyed a sort of uh, a play this world role without having to bear the burden of being linked to gold without having to exchange dollars for gold. It was sort of like a hegemony without tears. But actually, when we look at what, uh, what happened, you see a very different story. So immediately, once the dollar's gold link was broken, it plummeted. And again, the story told by the dollar boosters is, you know, everything, they always try to make everything look as though it's all under United States control. So when the dollar plummeted, they said, oh, it's great for the United States. United States exports were competitive. But if it was so great, then the United States uh, uh, monetary authorities, the Federal Reserve would not have intervened in markets in order to shore up the dollar. And we know they did. So the point is that uh, uh, these interventions show that actually the dollar was plummeting far more than what the U.S. authorities had required. And that simply allowing the dollar to find its own level without backing for gold was no uh, sort of easy ride for, for the dollar. 
Well, they were sort of trapped by their free market view uh, that uh, really uh, was their form of market in, in, uh, market intervention. All markets are regulated, any kind of a market. Uh, either they're regulated by governments uh, or by monopolies uh, and by bankers. And the free market economists who are saying, oh, it's wonderful, we've been able to not only go off gold, but in the process we've devalued uh, and Treasury Secretary Connolly was pointing to the fact that now we can uh, really get uh, an advantage for our exporters, uh, not realizing that pretty soon our, uh, we were going to deindustrialize and uh, not really be an export economy uh, in, in the way that we were before, uh, because we were becoming a very high cost economy, a high cost economy because of our military spending, uh, because of uh, the increasing financialization by the fact that more and more of the income in the American economy wasn't going to the export sector uh, of products at all. It was going to real estate and finance uh, and was becoming the kind of economic overhead that is undercut America's ability to export, and therefore it undercut its ability to uh, uh, balance its uh, uh, international payments by uh, by trade, uh, as we're now seeing. So the United States tried to control world trade and investment markets via the financial sector, backed by uh, diplomatic brass knuckles. Uh, and th that was the reality that uh, uh, the country's been trying to deal with. Absolutely, Michael, you know, and, and, you know, this whole this myth people talk about, you know, how markets are somehow spontaneous and natural and so on. All markets are made. They need a whole panoply of government regulation in order to create a market for anything. And this goes also for the international market for dollars. You know, there is again the, the dollar boosters, the people who want to say that the dollar system is completely natural and will has no problems and will last forever. These are the people who always argue that uh, the creation of the so-called euro dollar market, that is to say a market for dollar and dollar denominated financial instruments outside the United States was was the, you know, it had to happen because you can't control flows of money. Money flows are inherently uh, 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 uncontrollable. Of course, if they were inherently uncontrollable, then wh why would the United States and other such governments spend so much time and effort trying to persuade countries to lift capital controls? Because capital controls actually work and they did not, they don't want these capital controls to work. So anyway, so the point I'm trying to make is that the euro dollar market itself was a result of uh, changes made to the to the legal and and re regulatory environment in which money operated both domestically and internationally, particularly in the United States and the United Kingdom at this time, which laid the basis for the creation of an international market in dollars. So anyway, the first point is that the fact of the matter is that the United States, again, was not, the United States authorities could not afford to accept whatever valuation the market gave to the dollar. They intervened in markets to try to shore it up. The next thing that happened is also really interesting, which is that essentially the dollar was falling so much uh, uh, that commodity prices were also rising or commodity prices were rising. You see, the, uh, any money has, and the dollar in particular, has a very specific relationship to the prices of commodities. They move in opposite directions. If commodity prices go up, the value of the dollar goes down. So one of the things that happened in the late 19... Um, 60s, sorry, late 1960s and early 70s, is that there was a big 
rise in the prices of commodities in general. And if you see in this chart, it shows you that uh, there was a big spike in the uh, in the prices of food in the early 1970s. And uh, partly in response to this, but partly also because, uh, because the dollar was falling, the OPEC countries, the, the, the newly formed organization of petroleum exporting countries, basically jacked up. They quadrupled in 1973. They quadrupled the price of oil. And this could have had some, this was a really earth-shaking event in its time, and it was destined to have extremely bad consequences for the world economy. And a large part of what began to happen from here on is that the United States intervened in this crisis in order to once again use the crisis as an opportunity to stabilize the dollar. So, uh, yeah, Michael, I think you, you also have yes. written lots about well, this. Maybe, during yeah. this period, I was uh, going back and forth to the White House with Herman Kahn regularly to talk to the Treasury Secretary and the staff that was drawn largely from the oil industry. Uh, uh, the, and the U.S. told, uh, uh, told the oil countries that they could raise their export prices as much as they wanted. The more that uh, OPEC would raise its uh, oil price, export price, uh, the larger the price umbrella became for American oil companies. So the, the American oil companies were very glad to see this uh, because it certainly helped. Uh, all the United States wanted uh, from the oil countries was all of your export earnings have to be uh, sent to the United States by buying U.S. assets headed by treasury securities or minority stock ownerships uh, and bonds. And some of the uh, Saudi oil sheiks were said to buy uh, a million shares of every uh, stock listed in the Dow Jones Industrial uh, Average. So there was a huge flow, not only into uh, U.S. Uh, treasury uh, securities and other securities, uh, but also into uh, British uh, American banks. Uh, and British banks. Uh, there was a, you, uh, you mentioned euro dollars, and the United States uh, preferred for deposits uh, to come uh, to the United States via uh, London, uh, euro dollars, because uh, the, when I was at Chase, we found the single largest depositor, foreign depositor, was uh, uh, really uh, the 20, young 20 year old uh, who was in charge uh, at Chase's uh, London branch, who was in charge of sending uh, the euro dollars to uh, the head office uh, in New York. And uh, under the, the Federal Reserve rules said that uh, banks didn't have to have any reserve requirements against euro dollars, unlike deposits. Uh, euro dollars were the way uh, in which the United States got sort of uh, free money uh, uh, for the bankers, and the bankers were flooded with uh, these uh, dollars and uh, uh, on which they paid very low interest, and they turned around and uh, uh, began lending them out to uh, global South countries, to Latin America especially, uh, to Africa, to Asia. Uh, and so this money flowing in was, became an almost reckless uh, relending of these dollars to uh, third world debtor, debtor governments. And, you know, the, the, again, this is uh, so. So the first thing I should say here, of course, is that, uh, uh, you know, th this was a very complex moment and there were certainly advantages of uh, this moment, the rise quadrupling of oil prices for the U.S. Because in part, of course, uh, the U.S. itself had big oil companies, which were, of course, happy to benefit from it. And the other thing that this did, of course, is that 
by raising prices of oil and ensuring, of course, that uh, and, and still dominating it in dollars meant that the rest of the world now acquired four, four times as many reasons to hold dollars. So again, this in, in itself played a role in stabilizing temporarily at least uh, the price, the, the value of the dollar. But at the same time, uh, it also uh, 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 it also uh, the as as Michael said the, um, uh, the Americans basically persuaded the uh, OPEC countries to deposit their money in in Western financial institutions, U.S. financial institutions, particularly those based in in London but elsewhere as well, and they. Um, they, they, of course, had to go on a lending spree because, remember, it, it may sound like a great thing that you are a bank and all these people are depositing money uh, uh, into your bank. But the fact of the matter is, if you're a banker, if people are depositing money into your bank, you've got to pay interest. Where are you going to earn the money to pay interest from? You can only do so by lending. And that's why you see this enormous lending spree. Uh, as Michael says, without really taking account of the consequences. By the way, there was also a big lending spree within the United States. But anyway, uh, there was a, certainly a big international lending spree and money was lent to third world countries and also to communist countries where necessary. Who were uh, So in this period, there was a very complex new processes of money flows that were set up. And in this context, the other thing that began to happen is that for third world, many third world countries who were borrowing this money, they were getting access to this money practically free of, free of charge in a sense, because in the 1970s, again, uh, nominal interest rates, wherever they were, but uh, the, the they were they were not low they were relatively high but so were the so was inflation so in real terms there were actually negative real interest rates so you were borrowing with practically negative real interest rates and this as i say created a sort of spigot of practically free money for third world countries to borrow and to industrialize with yes many third world countries also this money flowed into corrupt bank accounts and so on but many third world countries were also using this money to industrialize and in the end this is not something that the United States wanted to see because from the start, the United States has always wanted to have its, uh, its, its relative power unquestioned, not just its absolute power. So in that sense, this whole uh, 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 scenario uh, was not, you know, it had very mixed consequences. The United States continued to experience very high inflation, and therefore the uh, there was a the, the pressure on the dollar continued, and the dollar you know uh, uh, lending was flowing out to third world countries who were also industrializing. So the scenario was not great. And in this context, let me also say that another problematic thing from the U.S. point of view is that uh, you see European governments had already led, have already forced the hand of the United States into breaking the link with gold because essentially they demanded so much gold and they acquired so much gold as a consequence of their export surpluses that it is left the U.S. with no choice. Now, uh, immediately after the breaking of the link with gold, the United States and the European governments were involved in the so-called Committee of 20, which was supposed to try to find a solution to this crisis and essentially try to negotiate a new financial system. And in this, again, Keynes' ideas were brought back on the table and so on. But the United States essentially brought to an end the Committee of 20 negotiations by doing this deal with the OPEC countries and changing the situation on the ground. And by the way, that deal with the OPEC countries also involves something else. 
Europe, Western Europe and Japan as the capitalist allies of the United States were heavily dependent on importing oil. And they were desperate to try to uh, uh, create a sort of multilateral recycling of petrodollars in such a way that they, they said to the OPEC countries, look, it's your right, it's your oil, you are, it's, you are free to raise the price of oil, but at least let's create a system in which we can borrow from you the money we need, essentially give us your surpluses as export credits. And this possibility was nixed by the United States, and that's how you got this recycling of petrodollars uh, through, uh, uh, through Western financial institutions. So once the Committee of 20 negotiations were essentially scuttled by these means, you the Europeans were essentially really quite mad and they said, okay, we are going to start our process of monetary integration, something that they had been talking about for a while, but they, they now took the first steps in European monetary integration, which would eventually lead almost 30 years later into the creation of the euro. So this is also very important because, you know, People fail to see this, but the, but the euro itself constitutes the first example of exit, a planned exit from the dollar system. Because by creating the euro, the European countries essentially ejected the dollar from their mutual transactions. Uh, so for trade within the European Union, etc., not only were initially European currencies and eventually the euro were really what were going to be used. So this was the beginning of European monetary integration. Well, by the, uh, I, I want to say what was happening in the banking sector. Uh, the government wanted uh, the banks to find uh, it profitable to accept uh, oil uh, uh, OPEC uh, deposits. And uh, when I was working uh, at Chase in the 1960s, my job was to uh, analyze whether countries could pay or not. But by the 1970s, uh, I had a meeting at the Federal Reserve and uh, they said, uh, do, uh, it's absolute, you don't need to analyze the ability to pay anymore. Uh, because if a country can't pay its debts to the United States, we will lend that country the money. Uh, and I said, but uh, uh, I don't see how uh, I named some Latin American countries, uh, Argentina and Chile. Uh, how are they going to be able to pay? And the Federal Reserve uh, uh, officer said, well, according to your analysis, uh, Professor Hudson, uh, England uh, is insolvent. It can't pay. And I said, oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yes. And they said, but it, it, is it going to pay? Of course it's going to pay. We will always lend England the money to pay the money it owes the United States. Uh, it'll just be uh, indebted to us. Uh, and uh, well, you were going to do the same for Latin America. So uh, the American banks were encouraged. They said, okay, we don't have to look at the markets anymore. We don't have to uh, uh, do an analysis of the ability to pay. Uh, it's The whole system uh, has become uh, uh, political. Well, since you bring up uh, uh, the creation of the euro, uh, Radica, uh, the euro uh, was uh, was indeed meant to integrate the European economies largely by uh, combining uh, the surplus-running uh, German economy with uh, the rest of the eurozone that was running uh, a deficit. And so, in that sense, they were uh, trying to uh, balance and stabilize their own exchange rates. Uh, however, the way in which the euro was created was uh, is basically the satellite currency of the United States because it was designed by Robert Mundell 
at the University of Chicago uh, for uh, what he was given uh, uh, the annual Nobel Prize for the worst uh, economic advice uh, that they give annually. And uh, he uh, created the euro in a very right-wing Chicago school way that uh, blocked uh, the eurozone from actually using the euro uh, in the central bank to finance Keynesian-style uh, budget deficits. Uh, the uh, Euro European countries were forbidden to run a budget deficit of more than 3% of their GDP, which is a very small uh, amount. And what that did was prevent the euro from creating enough money, enough currency, enough credit uh, to really become a rival for the dollar. It was it, it was sort of tied uh, uh, with uh, crippled uh, from the very beginning by the rules that made sure that the government would not be able to create enough credit to enable a European recovery to take place without very, very heavy borrowing from the uh, from the European banks uh, and from uh, the American banks. So the euro was created in a way to minimize uh, the role of government, maximize the role of banks, uh, and uh, essentially uh, uh, that's what made it a uh, right-wing uh, Chicago school development from the very beginning as we've now seen uh, uh, how it's unfolded. No, I mean, you know, you you certainly are absolutely right, Michael, when you say that the design of the euro is quite right wing, although I would attribute it. And, and there's also no doubt that the advice given by uh, by Robert Mundell was certainly part of the thinking of the Europeans when they were designing the euro. But I would say that also the ideas that poured into, that the sort of flowed into the creation of the euro, were as much a result of German ordo-liberalism, which has always yes. been monetarily exceedingly conservative. Yes. So in terms of the ideas, there is also another thread of ideas pouring into this. Uh, uh, in terms of uh, the kind of financial system it created, I think this is also a really interesting thing because on the one hand, the euro wanted was designed, as you rightly pointed out, to preserve the dominance of the German industrial machine in uh, in Europe as a whole. but and, and, and then for the rest of the countries of Europe with these sort of limits on deficits and so on, they, it, they were sort of, uh, it was designed in such a way as to penalize them for engaging in any kind of expand, productively expansionary activities. And that's also true, but that is really more having to do with the internal politics of the, of, of the European Union and the dominance of the Germans in the project. Uh, and of course, remember this project evolved Evolved over a very long period of time. But having said both of those things and agreeing with both those things, I wouldn't go so far as to say that uh, this was the result was that the euro, uh, euro became a satellite currency of the US. The fact of the matter is that the euro, uh, the euro did the, euro, the whole process of European monetary integration and eventually the euro, euro, it did take the mutual transactions of the Europeans out of the dollar system. It made them independent of the dollar system. And also the, the, the euro is used more widely. What you are saying about... Um, about uh, uh, the, 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 what you're pointing to, which is the the way in which the United States financial system provides credit and, you know, uh, functions on the basis of deficits. Yes, that is something 
the, the euro is not going to do. But that again goes back to our contrast between a productive, productively oriented financial system and a speculatively oriented financial system. And we'll come back to that uh, when we come to this later. But yes, so definitely the, the, the euro was created, as I would say, certainly as a way of the of, of essentially the Europeans stepping out of the dollar system. Now, through, we are still in the 1970s. And another thing that I would like to point out and sort of remind people of is that the mid-70s is also the period when the G7 meetings begin. Originally, the G6 and then the United States brought in Canada as a sort of a, a North American partner. And this made the uh, made it the G7. And the G7 meetings, which are annual, were uh, 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 forums where a lot of the extremely um, fraught politics of the dollar were played out, where the Europeans, for example, would demand that the United States reduce its deficits and so on. And remember, they now no longer needed dollars. So they kept saying the United States should reduce these deficits. They uh, also put pressure on the United States to stop the war in Vietnam, which was proving very inflationary. They essentially ensured that Johnson would refuse to run for a second term because you know, this, they, they made it politically impossible. And people even said this is the Europeans dictating to the Americans. So anyway, so so this so essentially uh, the 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 G7 became a forum at which the mutual exchange rates and so on would be determined based on uh, a, a, the, the, a collective decision. So this idea that somehow the United States was running its own show, unilaterally deciding monetary policy for the world, this is simply has never been true, certainly not as long as the G7 uh, what, what has been operating. And so in that sense, you, you also see that uh, this was the depth of the crisis of the dollar system that you found in, 19, in the 1970s. And this crisis is resolved or appears as though it is resolved by the Volcker shock. Um, uh, and, and essentially, this is the point where in the late 1970s, um, inflation is going out of control in the United States. And uh, Paul Volcker, who is regarded as a sound money man, is brought in as the new Federal Reserve chairman in order to deal with this problem. And Volcker does the only thing that a central bank, you know, capitalist country central banks know how to do, which is the only way they know how to deal with inflation is to restrict money supply and allow interest rates to rise as high as they want, uh, uh, particularly rise above the rate of inflation so that Eventually, they will, by rising high enough, they will create a recession and they will eventually, the recession will kill inflation rather than any particularly sound, particularly deft monetary policy. So this is what he did in 1978-79. Uh, uh, well, Volcker was my old boss's boss at uh, Chase Manhattan, uh, and I was uh, the note taker on uh, uh, talk, uh, talks that he would give periodically uh, to the banks. And uh, when you say he's fighting inflation, uh, what he, he defined inflation as what are construction workers paid? And uh, he said, I'm going to raise interest rates until I don't see the wages of construction uh, workers uh, rising anymore. And uh, they uh, rose to a peak of uh, 20 percent uh, just uh, uh, in 1980. 
And uh, the important thing is that this, obviously, with interest rates that high, nobody could borrow to buy housing. You're not going to pay a mortgage uh, at 20% rate over 30 years. Uh, companies couldn't borrow. But uh, while what this did was uh, crash uh, the stock market, the bond market, and the real estate market uh, by the interest rates, this set the stage for the Reagan uh, decade, for Reaganomics. This set the stage for the largest bond uh, rally in history. Interest rates went down from 20% then to, uh, I guess you could say today's uh, uh, zero, almost zero rates, or I shouldn't say today's, last year's almost zero rates. There was a steady decline in interest rates, a, a, a creation of enormous uh, in, uh, interest credit, and uh, basically uh, the banks are given enough money that all of a sudden the way to make money after Volcker uh, was not by industry anymore. Uh, it was by financial means, by corporate takeovers, by the leveraged buyout. All of that became the legacy. Uh, under Reagan, uh, combined with tax cuts for the financial sector, tax cuts for the high-income uh, high, uh, uh, people, uh, but most of all, the uh, financialization of, uh, uh, of industry that transformed the whole role of the U.S. economy in international affairs. Yeah, I mean, before we, uh, and this is, this is a really important point, Michael, but I also want to say one other thing about the Volcker shock before we move on to um, what this did to the US economy, which is something very serious and important for us to understand. But the Volcker shock, by allowing interest rates to go as high as they did, and at one point they hit uh, uh, nearly 20% in the United States, right? So this is how high interest rates had to go. This is relevant for today. So this is how high interest rates had to go in those days to quell, to essentially bring down inflation. As Michael says, he defined it particularly in terms of wages. And that's definitely also important. But this sort of Volcker shock created the third world debt crisis, beginning with the default of Brazil, Mexico and Argentina. And this is also very important from our point of view today, because, again, first of all, the fact that the uh, 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 the, the Volcker shock uh, uh, created the debt crisis, the fact that the dollar went up very high in this period, again, this is used as grist for the mill of those who are boosting the dollar. But in fact, it is actually the, this whole process was creating many contradictions. But as far as the third world was, was concerned, it did look as though this was the United States not only sort of, you know, uh, uh, bullying the third world and, and oppressing the third world, but also getting away with it. And certainly the 1980s and 1990s were periods during which, thanks to the Volcker shock and the third world debt crisis, third, many third world countries actually experienced a retardation in their growth. They had to work harder and harder to produce more and more of the cheap goods, whether it was coffee or cocoa or cotton goods or cheap manufacturers or whatever it is they were producing, they were producing their guts out in order to export to the rest of the world, particularly to the first world countries, in order to earn the dollars to repay the debt. Now, this was also, you know, a, a, a really uh, and essentially so this debt was being repaid. Uh, and of course, with the fact that they were repaying the debt was also bringing in, in fund, fund flows into the dollar system. But this sort of dollar repayment was really repayment by punishment. It was a repayment by, by restricting consumption. 
of third world countries, consumption as well as investment in third world countries, rather than repayment by increasing the capacity of these countries to produce. So when, you know, and this was, of course, whole process was overseen by the IMF and the World Bank. So when Michael says, you know, that these countries, sorry, these institutions were actually promoting underdevelopment rather than development, this is, you saw that in its all its uh, gory details in the 1980s and 1990s. So this was really quite important, uh, uh, what happened to third world countries. And by the way, this also meant that the price of everyday things that you could buy in first world countries, whether it's tea or coffee or cocoa or clothing or shoes or what have you, began to go down. So it looks like this is a great victory for the United States. But now let's look at what this did what the policy uh, 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 priorities set in train by the Volcker shock, which are essentially the policy priorities of neoliberalism, what they did to the productive apparatus of the United States itself, because the Volcker shock punished U.S. industry. Uh, the U.S. industry was already beginning to decline, particularly relative to the more robust, productive and technologically advanced industries of Western Europe and Japan. So U.S. industry had already begun its decline in the 19, late 50s and through the 1960s. But now that decline is massively accelerated. And what you see already by the first couple of years um, of the Volcker shock, you begin to see the end of the manufacturing interest as an independent interest. Let me explain what this means. So the Volcker shock basically induced a recession and the recession was a double dip recession or a W-shaped recession. So it extended over several years. And in the first few years, you know, there was a manufacturing industry. These people got together. They went and talked to Reagan. They talked to Volcker. They pleaded for a lowering of interest rates so that they could, you know, continue industrial expansion and so on. But they eventually failed. And, and what this also did is when they failed, they essentially threw in the towel. They said, if we can't make money by producing, we are going to try to make money through financialization. So this set in process, uh, the financialization of many productive American corporations. This is how, as you may read in many places, a company like GM today is probably going to make more money by lending you money to buy their cars rather than by making their cars. So this was the beginning of the financialization of um, of, of the U.S. economy and the end of an independent manufacturing interest. Well, you've described two parallel uh, forms of uh, deindustrialization. I want to uh, review just what you said about the third world countries. Mexico defaulted in uh, uh, 1982. It could not pay the interest of, uh, on the Teso Bonas. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, the high interest rates that were uh, created at that time well, were not renewed. A lot of uh, third world debts were falling due, and uh, they couldn't reborrow uh, these uh, debts at uh, a three or four or five percent. They were charged huge amounts. All they could do was default, and the default spread rapidly uh, through uh, Latin America, uh, Asia, uh, Africa. So literally, the international bond market dried up almost totally. No one could borrow uh, in the 1980s. And we've discussed that on earlier shows. And so uh, how are they, without borrowing, how are these economies that it, whose uh, economic development had been crippled by the IMF and the World Bank, how are they to develop? 
The only way they could balance their payments was to do what the uh, U.S. Uh, State Department told the IMF to tell them, sell off your industry, sell off your uh, uh, public ownership of uh, utilities, of uh, uh, basic uh, uh, natural monopolies, uh, your oil, your minerals and rent. So there was a huge sell off and uh, uh, there was no money at all. Uh, under the austerity that, of the 1980s for the, uh, the third world countries to really develop. Uh, but what uh, happened in the United States was similar. Uh, as Radek has just said, uh, the uh, money uh, was to be made financially, not, uh, any, not by uh, actually uh, investing in, uh, in corporations. This was the uh, decade of uh, junk bond uh, takeovers, leveraged buyouts, uh, initially by uh, Drexel Burnham, uh, that uh, began really with the uh, CBS uh, leveraged buyout, and then spread to the uh, uh, the Nabisco takeoff that was uh, described in the book uh, Barbarians at the Gate. Uh, and uh, money, uh, you you uh, all of a sudden people could borrow. Uh, go to Drexel Burnham and later uh, other houses and borrow high interest rates, uh, junk bonds. Uh, and at that time, 11, 12, 13% was uh, a bonanza for uh, investors. And uh, how could they make money uh, by borrowing at rates that uh, profit-making industrial companies had never been able to do? Well, they made uh, essentially uh, money by a kind of arbitrage, by borrowing at, let's say, 12%, uh, and buying a company whose dividends, uh, now that uh, the Volcker, uh, Volcker shock had collapsed uh, the stock prices of industrial companies, they could uh, uh, buy, uh, uh, borrow and buy dividends, uh, paying uh, assets at uh, uh, much higher uh, rates than uh, 12%. And if they were not actually uh, generating profits to pay these rates, they could begin to sell off the companies. They could uh, carve them up. Uh, companies were being bought out, broken up, uh, Cravis uh, and all sorts of other uh, KK, KKR were other companies were uh, doing this. And uh, in fact, it was, uh, it was free money for the investors uh, uh, because they organized uh, a criminal conspiracy for which uh, uh, Drexel Burnham people and uh, their clients such as Ivan Volsky were sent to jail. Suppose you wanted to uh, buy a company with borrowed money. Well, you'd get together and say, okay, in order to buy this company, we have to make a, uh, an announcement of a, uh, a, a takeover demand. And uh, we're going to have to pay 20%, 25% over the existing stock uh, market price in order to uh, have the existing stockholders say, okay, we're going to sell out uh, the, uh, our stocks and uh, you can take the company private. Well, uh, knowing that they were going to uh, make a tender offer, it's called, of a 20% uh, gain, which is a huge gain. Imagine making 20% in one week and only putting down 5% of the money yourself and borrowing from a bank uh, or a brokerage house, 95% for a stock option. Uh, the, uh, uh, the Drexel Burnham investors uh, bought, uh, would say, we're going to buy company X, and, uh, but we're going to buy stock options uh, to buy at this low price 
uh, from the existing brokerage houses, and then they'd make the tender offer, uh, knowing uh, how much they were going to offer, and the stocks would rise, jump 20%. They would then exercise the stock options, uh, that, uh, this ginormous gain, and the stock options would give them actually the money to uh, pay the stockholders to, to buy out uh, uh, the, uh, the firm. They became instant uh, billionaires. And uh, of course, the Fed finally said, wait a minute, this is insider dealing. You're not allowed to uh, 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 to do this uh, 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 on margin. And uh, uh, they stopped that. But what they didn't stop was the whole concept of leveraged buyouts and takeovers uh, of uh, buying a, a company not to, uh, say, produce cars, not to produce uh, toothpaste or consumer goods, uh, but to produce dividends and to produce rising stock prices. And uh, money was made no longer by making uh, making uh, profits that would increase uh, the stock price. Uh, for the last for a hundred years, people had uh, analyzed uh, uh, investment in, uh, in industrial corporations by saying, "Let's look at the profits. Let's." see how they're going up over time, and we're going to capitalize the value of the profits into uh, stocks. But uh, what the uh, junk, the takeover people uh, did, the financial people, is saying, well, uh, we're not going to uh, invest in making profits by uh, the long-term investment, research and development, uh, developing markets. That takes too long. Uh, what we're going to do is use the existing profits that we have uh, to uh, buy our own stock, stock buybacks, and uh, to pay dividends. We're going to raise uh, the, the stock market price. And what we're producing is capital gains because the government is tax, tax capital gains at only a fraction of uh, profits. Uh, the government tax system doesn't want companies to invest in employing labor. They don't want companies to invest in uh uh, in uh, capital expenditures to produce more. They want companies to use uh, and have designed the tax system to uh, make companies simply use the existing profits for uh, stock buybacks and dividends uh, and essentially shrink the companies. They want the companies to commit industrial suicide. And indeed, uh, Wall Street well, understood exactly what was happening. And uh, they became, uh, ever since uh, the Reagan administration, uh, is participants in this uh, uh, industrial suicide of the United States by financializing the company, replacing financial, uh, re replacing industrial engineering with financial engineering, uh, and uh, uh, essentially transforming uh, the whole uh, character of capitalism itself away from industrial capitalism to finance uh, capitalism. Yes, exactly, Michael. You know, this really is if you if you really count the cost that the United States economy has been paying uh, in order that the Federal Reserve and other U.S. authorities essentially uh, 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 create this international casino, which is the dollar system. Uh, if you count that cost, you really begin to see how the United States has uh, uh, economy has come to such a parlor state, and this is directly connected with the desire to keep the dollar as the world's money. Because throughout this period, while this is happening, essentially financialization is strangulating US industry. And even as it's doing that, throughout this period, what you see is that as the old, highly regulated financial system of the United States is coming under pressure because of high inflation and high interest rates and all sorts of things are going wrong, savings and loans were 
essentially because they had lent for a long-term basis on you know long mortgage rates that were at very low interest rates they were hit really badly by the nominally high interest rates and the high inflation of the 1970s and they went into a huge crisis in the united states but if you examine what happened to that and how the authorities responded, what you see is something that has been true for the entire period since the uh, 1970s. And that is that every time there is any problem with the financial sector, and there were many during this time, instead of saying, let us re-regulate, let's uh, the old regulations are not working, but let's put in new regulations which will try to achieve the same aims. Instead of that, they always deregulated in a way that encouraged financialization, that is to say the increase in financial activity in relation to productive activity. And of course, increasingly that financial activity no longer uh, being uh, no longer uh, serving to expand production, but rather serving only to suck out the profits that were being made, whether in the form of profits or wages by uh, productive uh, uh, forces, whether yeah, whether productive capital or, or workers. And what's really interesting as well is that high in this this entire period, if you see the in the slide that that shows interest rates through the entire period, um, in a minute, you see here that uh, the interest rates, of course, reached a peak at the, uh, uh, in the Volcker shock of nearly 20%. And then you see them coming down. But what you also see, and of course, you see in, our, in the present time, since the 2000s, you see them uh, exceedingly low as well. But what you see in the 80s and 90s is that this was a period of financialization in which interest rates remain relatively high. And that in, that, in themselves, these interest rates would have been very uh, would have made it very difficult for there to be a serious a revival of, of of U.S. industry. So in this period, you had uh, essentially interest rates strangle high interest rates strangulating U.S. industry. Well, while these interest rates uh, uh, were falling, they still remained high, and uh, as they fell, the economy could afford going deeper and deeper uh, into debt. Uh, and uh, the, this is what uh, the uh, business cycle theorists uh, missed. If you look at uh, typical discussions of the business cycle, it's a cycle, like a sine curve, uh, smoothly going up and down. But uh, what was happening, especially since the 1980s, is that uh, each recovery, and we've said this before on this show, each recovery since World War II has taken place at a higher and higher and higher level of debt. So uh, the economy was gradually... Uh, uh, increasing its debt because that's how uh, wealth was created. It wasn't being created by uh, uh, capital investment in, in industry. It was created financially, mainly by debt leveraging, by borrowing uh, money uh, at uh, interest and uh, making a uh, capital gain uh, on, on it. And uh, the result is that people thought that the economy was getting richer and richer, uh, but this wasn't an industrial business cycle, as people had uh, discussed before. It wasn't a cycle of costs and uh, prices uh, going up and down and automatic stabilizers. Uh, there was nothing to stabilize uh, the uh, exponential growth in debt that was taking place. Uh, and uh, so the result is that uh, as you uh, could make money financially instead of by uh, industrial engineering and, and production, uh, you uh, had the economy uh, de-industrializing uh, de more and more, uh, and all of this was depicted as uh, creating wealth, uh, and it was creating financial wealth 
not industrial means of production or what people had usually thought of uh, as being uh, uh, tangible real wealth. And uh, uh, the byproduct of all of this wealth is that it was very heavily concentrated in the wealthiest 1%, uh, maybe 10% of the economy. Uh, this financial wealth was not shared uh, with the participants in the industrial economy of uh, production and consumption. And so the, the economies was being distorted. Its shape uh, was, was shifting. It was polarizing. Uh, and uh, this uh, wealth of the 1% really uh, found its counterpart on the opposite side of the balance sheet in the debts of the 99%. Uh, and the 99% thought that maybe, well, it could also uh, profit financially by uh, becoming a landlords in miniature. You borrow and buy the highest price home that you could find. Uh, you, you could be in real estate. They thought of themselves not as wage earners, but as using uh, their ability to earn an income, uh, to go to the bank and pledge this income to the bank for a mortgage and buy a house who's, uh, that would rise in price, maybe making more money in a single year than they could earn uh, by earning wages. So uh, all of that, uh, the way in which people were spending their money and gaining wealth was being transformed. And, you know, Michael, that this is, uh, you know, as you say, it's so much of the wealth in the United States over the past so many decades has become financial wealth. And this underlines a point that our friend Jacob Asser has made in his concept of the financialization of GDP, which is that this vastly exaggerates the, the wealth, of, you know, the, because U.S. Uh, uh, method of counting GDP uh, turns uh, uh, all this financial activity and makes it look as though it's productive activity, it vastly exaggerates the GDP of the United States and the real wealth and, and income of the United States. And of course, the second thing that this reminds me of is that, you know, uh, the inequality of the past several decades, which as most people recognize has reached astronomical levels, financialization has made a critical contribution to this and uh, unfortunately although thomas piketty and and uh, some you know or someone like thomas piketty has documented the rise in inequality what he has done however is he attributes it to the attributes it to the wrong reasons he makes it look as though this is the natural consequence of capitalism and to some extent it is but he fails to take into account the serious role, the central role that financialization has played in increasing inequality. But nevertheless, that's how you've got. So the whole point we're trying to make is that these features of a neoliberal uh, uh, United States uh, based on financialization have been on the one hand necessary to um, to support the dollar system. And on the other hand, they have strangulated productive activity and made the United States into a less productive and more and more unequal system. And this policy paradigm has been continued from Reagan to Bush Jr. to Clinton to, sorry, Bush Sr. to Clinton to Bush Jr., Obama, Trump, and today Biden. The Democrats has, uh, they, the, the Democrats and the Republicans have a cross-party consensus. And this is what accounts for the parlor state of the US economy. Um, and, and, and in this context, it's also important to see that uh, uh, part of the reason why the third world got so badly punished by this system, you know, by essentially by, by having to repay their debts, is that their elites, their ruling classes did not have the courage and the political will to default. Um, 
they, you know, Fidel Castro said back in 1983-84, when the uh, 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 when the debt crisis was at its height, he said to the Latin American countries that were the, in, the, in the eye of the storm, he said, "Don't repay your debts. These are these are odious debts. You don't have to repay them." But unfortunately, they did, and this is why you get the the the, 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 the that's why the third world third world countries suffered as much as they did. Um, not... So the next, sorry, you wanted to say something, Michael. No, I, I was waiting for you. I, yeah, I okay. Thought... So and 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 then what you also see in the 1980s is that the Europeans, of course, have uh, thanks to the European monetary uh, integration and so on, they have largely absented themselves from the market for U.S. Treasuries, and so now the United States turns to Japan. Uh, Japan is the country that is going to uh, 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 that that you know the United States tries to inveigle it into buying the enormous number of treasuries that the United States is dumping on the uh, on the uh, on the market in this decade because it's twin deficits the federal deficit thanks to reaganomics and its tax cuts and so on uh, um, are increasing and on the other hand the uh, trade deficit is widening thanks to the deindustrialization of the United States so Japan in this period becomes a major buyer of uh, US treasuries well, it also became uh, a, a, a general uh, lender to other countries, and uh, it, it set up uh, more than any other country the carry trade. Uh, uh, it, because as interest rates were uh, lowered uh, in Japan in order to uh, uh, really uh, follow uh, the U.S. Uh, demands, uh, David, my friend David Hale, a Wall Street uh, investment manager for uh, Zurich International, called uh, Japan the 13th Federal Reserve District. Uh, it was creating so much money uh, that was flowing over, but it, uh, it was Japanese money largely that was lent to Iceland for the Icelandic uh, crisis. It was lent to all sorts of other countries uh, because you could borrow, uh, did banks uh, with low interest rates uh, could uh, uh, essentially lend to uh, other countries fueling uh, essentially the, the whole uh, uh, junk, uh, junk bond inflation and bank, bank crisis. Uh, that was that was a byproduct uh, that was uh, spilling over beyond Japanese U.S. Uh, relations. And you know, a lot of people try to portray uh, in this period Japan, you know, uh, um, as essentially uh, somehow a victim of U.S. policy. But in reality, what the Japanese were doing is, first of all, they were buying U.S. Treasuries, yes, but they were buying it at a time when interest rates on these Treasuries was very high. Borrowing costs were very high, so they were benefiting. Uh, Japanese financial interests were benefiting from buying U.S. Treasuries, and moreover, in return, the Japanese bought preferential access to uh, the US uh, uh, market. In particular, as many people who are old enough to remember will remember, Japanese cars flooded American highways. This was essentially the beginning of the destruction of the American automotive industry. The Japanese were also in the forefront of making very fuel efficient cars, which after the two oil shocks of the 1970s had become really uh, very important. So in this sense, and, and then you see people say that, uh, and, and so this, this whole mechanism of essentially the United States, the uh, interest rates being very high and the Japanese buying up uh, U.S. treasuries 
led the dollar to go to that peak that we saw in the chart earlier. And that peak, everybody recognized that this peak was unsustainable. And so the central bankers of the major countries, uh, major financially important countries, got together at the Plaza Hotel in New York to hammer out an agreement to bring the dollar lower in a, in, a, in a controlled fashion so that it wouldn't crash and create disruptions in the market. Uh, again, this is often linked to the fact that the Japanese, uh, you know, the, the, uh, this, this led if eventually the Japanese to um, have a real estate bubble in Japan because American interest, uh, the dollar went down, American interest rates went down as well to some extent. And therefore, this created a huge inflow of money into Japan and led to massive increases in real estate state prices in Japan. Uh, and we are told that this laid the foundation for the destruction of Japan. Well, in a way, it did. Uh, uh, and the, the, it did because, the, uh, as you say, Japanese were making money off this process uh, themselves. So uh, they themselves uh, were a part of uh, going along with the idea that turning from an industrial economy into a financial economy uh, was a way to get richer. And uh, uh, there was so much credit uh, that was created that uh, the value of the land around the palace uh, in Tokyo, uh, the Ginza district, was worth more than the value of all of the real estate in the United States. Uh, Japan had uh, essentially kept this uh, vast increase of credit within the economy itself uh, as, as well as, uh, as the carry trade. And uh, uh, the result was uh, a, uh, a disequilibrium, to say the least. Japan did try to buy real estate in the United States. It bought uh, Rockefeller Center, uh, uh, until it, and then it found out that uh, it bought the land under Rockefeller Center, thinking, well, what land value is going to go up, without realizing that uh, the billion dollars that it spent was uh, uh, absolutely fixed in uh, what it, under long term what it could charge. So Japan said, okay, uh, we see that uh, the 1% of the population is getting most of the money, and uh, let's buy trophies, let's buy luxuries. Uh, that's what's going to go up if you're going to polarize. So they tried to buy, uh, I think, the Pebble Beach uh, uh, golf course in uh, California, and uh, not realizing that uh, the Pebble Beach Golf Course was not going to let them uh, raise uh, uh, the money to the extent that they'd they'd uh, wanted to do it. Uh, the Japanese investments in the United States uh, were not very good, uh, so they thought somehow that they could invest uh, in uh, Japan. And uh, every month, the Daily Yamayuri uh, would publish the. Uh, uh, they had land prices. Uh, very distinct from overall real estate prices in Japan. And you could see the steady gains and everybody thought that buying land was going to uh, make them rich. And uh, of course, all that broke uh, uh, in, in 1990 uh, uh, after the Asia crisis. And uh, the, the sense, ever since then, real estate prices month after month after month have gone down and down and down in Japan. And all of this seeming financialized wealth uh, has been dissipated. But you know what the interesting thing about Japan is, uh, uh, Michael, uh, as you know, is that the Japanese, the Bank of Japan actually pricked the real estate bubble. And uh, they, because they knew that this is what was happening, they knew it was unsustainable, unlike the behavior of Alan Greenspan, who always professed never to be able to see any bubble, even while it was inflating under his very eyes. So in that sense, I think, the, because you see, they pricked the bubble because while they, 
inadvertently set off this process of, in, uh, of, of financialization. They, Japan remains to this day a, a far more industrially focused economy than the United States is. And as a consequence, their form of economic management remains quite distinct from that of the United States. So, you know, uh, this idea that somehow, you know, three or three decades of secular stagnation have destroyed Japan is actually highly exaggerated because Japan is still a very wealthy society. And in many ways, its economy is better than that of most Western countries, particularly that of the United States. So, you know, uh, I, I, let me just very briefly quote something I wrote in a recent article of mine on the subject of Japan's secular stagnation. Um, and how it tends to be discussed in the West. Um, the fact of the matter is that over the past three decades of Japan's secular stagnation, there have been at least two booms that have livened an otherwise gloomy Japanese outlook. The, uh, the Izanami boom of the 2000s and the Abenomics boom of the 2010s. Um, as The Economist magazine noted recently, overall growth in Japan has remained sluggish, but growth per head has recently been comparable to others in G7. Unemployment has remained minimal. Longevity has increased. Inequality has stayed relatively low. Moreover, the same uh, uh, economist report quoted a 2020 tweet by Paul Krugman that pointed to another reality. Within a decade of Japan's slowdown, other major economies, including the United States after its roaring 90s, had entered a period of low growth which appears similarly intractable. Krugman had tweeted, maybe Western countries who were so Western economists who were so critical of Japan circa 2000, myself included, should go to Tokyo and apologize to the emperor. Not that they did great, but we did much worse. So that is to say that this whole relation between financialization, productive economy, and the whole phenomenon of secular stagnation is really uh, now come home to roost even in Western countries. So this is something that we can discuss in further detail in another show. But for now, let me just say that um, the bond buying of Japan in the United, US, buying of US bonds had already faded by the end of the 1980s. And by the, by the early 1990s, the United States seemed to be in a real funk. Uh, Bush, George Bush Jr. lost the 1992 elections, very memorably, as James Carville said, because it's the economy, stupid. The economy was doing so badly that the incumbent president lost the elections. Remember also that this was the election in 1992 when Ross Perot became the most successful third party candidate, I think, in throughout the, uh, the history of uh, well, the 20th century history of the United States anyway, because he ran on a platform which said, look at Japan is doing so well. They're doing so well because they are not neoliberal, because they don't believe in free markets, because they are they have industrial policy. They are uh, able to be industrially powerful. That's what we need. And he ran a really successful campaign and even managed to shift Clinton's rhetoric a little bit more in an interventionist and anti-neoliberal direction. Of course, Clinton did not keep his promise, partly because 
no sooner was he elected than the financial interests essentially took charge of him. Alan Greenspan and others essentially met him and told him that if he tried to go through with his interventionist program, that there would be a big run on the market against the US dollar, against US treasuries, the, the Federal Reserve would be forced to increase interest rates, etc. and etc. So, in any case, the point is that in the 1990s, you got a whole new uh, political economy. And this was where you begin to see the shift to the different regime of uh, uh, the US trying to keep the dollar as the world's money, which is by inflating asset bubbles. And the first asset bubble to be inflated was, of course, the dot-com bubble. And in the prelude to that, you also see Alan Greenspan and the, and the Treasury generally engage in a huge drive to encourage other countries, particularly the big emerging markets of Asia, to lift capital controls because the idea they were told that, you know, if they lifted capital controls, all sorts of much needed productive investment would come to their country. But in fact, none of this happened. They lifted capital controls and the only type of money that flowed into their economies was short term hot money, which inflated the uh, uh, which inflated various asset markets in these countries and eventually led to the East Asian financial crisis. Well, that the 1990s really were the turning point in this financialization. And uh, what happened in America was very much like what had happened in England. Uh, you could think of Clinton as the American Tony Blair. Uh, in England, there were certain things that even the Thatcherite government couldn't do to privatize. Uh, uh, Tony Blair went much further than Thatcher in privatizing the railroads and just driving the nail into uh, what had been uh, Britain's industrial economy. Well, in the United States, uh, uh, Clinton uh, did things that uh, even the Reagan administration uh, could not have done. It took uh, the Democratic Party uh, pr uh, cloaking itself in, in the pretense that it was a party of labor to uh, end, uh, end financial regulations. It ended the Glass-Steagall Act. Uh, and it led commercial banks to become uh, brokerage houses. Uh, it, that diverted credit creation away from uh, 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 the industrial economy into the purchase of stocks and bonds and speculative uh, investments uh, and real estate. Uh, and then it deregulated uh, the uh, commodity markets, uh, essentially. And uh, so uh, uh, this was all capped by, uh, by the uh, anti, uh, Carter was really uh, much even more of an anti-labor president than uh, Reagan uh, by- You mean uh, Clinton was? Uh, I'm sorry, yes, Clinton. Clinton was, uh, Clinton was even more of an anti-labor uh, president explicitly than Reagan uh, while, while uh, essentially opening up NAFTA uh, to uh, low, make sure that uh, any tendency towards American uh, unionization would be countered, at least in the South, by migrants, uh, by cutting welfare, uh, and essentially by, uh, by shifting the uh, economy towards uh, uh, letting it be run by his Treasury Secretary, uh, Robert Rubin. And uh, that was sort of uh, the Rubinomics that was uh, turned over to the Fed uh, under uh, Alan Greenspan to uh, essentially uh, let uh, the financial system uh, run run wild while uh, basically uh, ending the uh, winding down the American tradition of uh, social protection uh, of uh, labor and uh, consumers and uh, uh, the poor and welfare. Uh, and then, as you just point out, uh, the, the South Asia crisis. 
of 1997 was... Uh, East Asian, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the East Asian, the East Asian crisis. crisis was also very important in another way, which also makes, as you rightly say, the 1990s a very liminal moment, a moment of transition. Because what happens in the... You know, you mentioned earlier, Michael, that the IMF and the World Bank had essentially lost most of their clients in the new century, the, in the 21st century. And part of this had to do with the way in which the IMF and the World Bank dealt with what were, after all, some of the most dynamic economies of the world, the economies of Korea, Malaysia, Thailand, and so on. And the way these countries were dealt with was so harmful to them that everybody who was anybody who was in, you know, who was involved in policymaking in third world countries was taking notes. And they realized that the IMF and the World Bank could not be relied on at all. And the moment they had any options, uh, to them, they essentially refused to take any money and refused to go to the IMF and the World Bank. And one of the things they did in order to prevent ever, ever having to go to the IMF and the World Bank is they engaged in a process of reserve accumulation. That is to say, instead of having a currency crisis, they accumulated, accumulated enough reserves to ensure that if there was downward pressure on their currency, they could intervene in markets in order to buy their own currencies and increase the prices of their currencies. But nevertheless, so the East Asian crisis was a big moment. And once the East Asian crisis occurred, then, of course, all the money that was going to these countries in order to make a quick killing returned home to the United States. And the dot-com bubble began to go up. Uh, and, of course, that burst in the 2000s. And this is also, therefore, uh, 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 the, another uh, transition point, because a point I was making earlier by showing the uh, slide of interest rates was that interest rates, although they came down after the Volcker shock, remained historically high in the 1980s and 1990s. But after the dot-com bubble burst in 2000, Alan Greenspan brought interest rates down to like 1% and kept it there until about 2004-05 when commodity prices began to go up, putting even more downward pressure on the dollar. So then he began to increase interest rates little bit by little bit by little bit. And by the time it got to about 5.25%, it had burst the new bubble that Greenspan had incubated in the U.S. economy, which is the housing and credit bubble based on all those toxic securities that most of us now know more than we ever want to about. So this was the bursting of the 2008 financial bubble. Well, I don't want to blame that simply on interest rates. Uh, uh, what, the bubble you're talking about was uh, the, a huge financial fraud, as my colleague at the uh, University of Missouri at Kansas City, Bill Black, has shown. Uh, the, the real estate uh, boom was largely a result of uh, a number of crooked uh, uh, banks making uh, huge loans that uh, could not be paid. Uh, that uh, companies knew that they, they couldn't be repaid to uh, racial minorities who in the past had been blacklisted. Uh, until about uh, uh, 2000, uh, it was very, very hard for black people uh, to get uh, a mortgage uh, in this country. Uh, they were redlined uh, and they were restricted to particular neighborhoods. Uh, and once they would move into a neighborhood, often the na whole neighborhood would be torn down. Uh, that had been a practice ever since uh, uh, the 1960s. Uh, I grew up in uh, near Hyde Park, uh, Kenwood, on the south side near the University of Chicago. And uh, in the late 
late uh, 50s, uh, finally, for the first time, banks begin to make uh, loans to uh, black uh, home buyers uh, on Dorchester Avenue, where I live. This is a block from uh, where Obama uh, has his uh, uh, had his house in Kenwood. Uh, and all of a sudden, as soon as a black family moved in, uh, the white families began to move out. Prices collapsed. Uh, speculators bought them up and sold the houses at double the price. Uh, to black people who'd been waiting finally to move from the west side of Chicago uh, into the uh, uh, the uh, where uh, the late, uh, where Lake Michigan was. Uh, well, basically, all of this prejudice against the blacks was stopped in the uh, uh, after 2000, and uh, so uh, the banks did begin to lend uh, to black people, but. Uh, only at uh, much higher interest rates, and uh, only uh, for to buy houses that were vastly overpriced uh, and uh, that could not be afforded by uh, by uh, most families. How do you get somebody to buy a house at double the price uh, that it had sold just a few years ago? For one thing, you don't require a down payment. For another thing. Uh, you don't uh, limit the uh, mortgage loan to just 25% of what they can earn. Uh, uh, you uh, fake uh, their earnings. And uh, third, you hire corrupt uh, property appraisers to say, well, the, the house really is worth uh, twice what it sold for two years ago. So you had an enormous bank fraud. Uh, and uh, the uh, all of this was saved by President Clinton, uh, I'm sorry, President Obama, who came in uh, as basically the lobbyist. Uh, for the uh, for the banking sector, he, he was sponsored by Robert Rubin, uh, Clinton's uh, Treasury Secretary, uh, and by uh, Citibank, which uh, was singled out by uh, uh, the FDIC as uh, the most incompetent and outright corrupt uh, bank uh, in the country. And uh, you had basically uh, fraud and a uh, a transformation of the character of mortgages uh, underlying Absolutely, this. Absolutely, Michael. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just wanted to say, I mean, I think that, you know, of course, we could talk for hours about the actual 2008 financial crisis and the bubble that that was inflated in the in the first decade of this century. But we want to focus on the international aspects right. and the and the right, dollar right. system. So so right, so right. let me just say very briefly, however, just for the record, that I think while you are undoubtedly right about the whole the sad role of uh, racism in, in real estate uh, uh, politics and political economy in the United States. I, I do like to underline that it is actually wrong to call the 2008 crisis a subprime crisis because that implies that most of the loans went to subprime borrowers. In reality, the banks only began lending yes. to subprime borrowers at the very tail end of the lending boom, which means That's that right. the bulk of the loans that were made but were to totally prime borrowers. Because you see, otherwise it becomes very easy to say, oh, all these subprime borrowers caused the crisis. That was not right. it at all. Uh, but That's anyway, right. to, to return to these international aspects, um, you know, the, the fact is that um, the low interest rates or what is called LIRP or ZIRP, which is low or zero interest rate policy, um, it certainly played a role in this. While I don't doubt that banks were also quite fraudulent, but the fact of the matter is that low interest rate environments in uh, create an incentive to take unreasonable risks. And in that sense, and because it still remains relevant today, the only way you can explain why the while the economy is tanking during COVID, asset prices were going up, 
is because of the low interest rate policy, right? But anyway, right. the point is that uh, the international story that is told about the 2008 financial crisis, which was told again and again and repeated again and again by the highest placed people, whether it is Ben Bernanke at the Federal Reserve or George Bush Jr. Uh, in the White House, is that this bubble got inflated because of the so-called global savings glut or the Asian savings glut. And the general idea, which was uh, was that, you know, uh, uh, these Asians are saving too much. They are the ones who are essentially investing in the United States. And the uh, evidence for this was that, you know, there was, uh, you know, the Chinese were uh, buying uh, a lot of uh, uh, U.S. treasuries and other uh, uh, central banks in East Asia were buying a lot of treasuries. However, if you see from this slide of advanced economies and gross capital flows, Paul, if you might show slide number nine, yeah, you see from this, this is from a, um, a, um, a paper at the Bank of International Settlements, uh, uh, two economists from the Bank of International Settlements who wrote this precisely to counter this false narrative of the Asian savings glut being at the root of the 2008 financial crisis. The, um, the real cause of the financial crisis was the inflow of money primarily from Europe, from the UK and that continental uh, Eurozone. Because that, if you look at the bar, each bar shows gross capital flows uh, around the World. And bulk of these are, of course, a very large proportion of these are going into the United States. And you see that the green part of each bar are the advanced economies and all the other parts, whether they are the emerging Asia or the oil producers or whatever, they represent a very small part of the total capital inflows into the United States. So what this chart tells us is that the financial crisis was a result of essentially flows from other rich countries. And this is not surprising if you consider the fact that while the world as a whole, you know, people call the uh, this 2008 crisis the global financial crisis. But you see that why in this instance, it's actually more accurate to call it the North Atlantic financial crisis, because the overwhelming majority of the funds that went, international funds that went into the toxic securities being generated by the United States were coming from Britain and from the Eurozone uh, 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 financial institutions, because these were the guys who gorged themselves on uh, the toxic securities being generated. And that is why bulk of the financial distress was concentrated in Europe. So, uh, and, and what's really, and of course, after the 2008 crisis, you know, as they say, once bitten, twice shy. So in this context, what happened, if you see in the next slide, is that international financial flows, um, uh, you can see them peaking, they're reaching the huge, I mean, unprecedented peak uh, in 2007, then falling precipitously, and then recovering but remaining less than half of what they had been in 2007. And this also shows us something else, which is around this time, this idea that the United States can open a casino and invite money flowing into uh, 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 into the, 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 the uh, into the whatever asset bubble was going in the United States. This was beginning to fade. And increasingly, the monies that are involved in US-generated asset bubbles are 
domestic U.S. funds. So that's really an important thing to remember because, of course, after 2008, uh, you know, that uh, housing and credit bubbles have been replaced now by what we call an everything bubble. So every asset market is inflated, but the extent of international investment in these is considerably lower. I don't have anything to add to that. Uh, that that's right. Uh, you, the internationally, the uh, Europeans have been big losers in the bubble. The, uh, for instance, uh, the German uh, local uh, savings banks uh, had bought uh, many of the packaged mortgages that the United States was selling, uh, and the mortgages went bad. So uh, German uh, uh, savers lost a lot of money, uh, and the Federal Reserve uh, uh, bailed out these foreign banks. Uh, just almost just as much as they bailed out the American banks, especially uh, the French banks, uh, Paribas, uh, all of these were uh, heavily uh, bailed out. Uh, but the shock at uh, uh, other industrial countries of investing in the U.S. and abroad was uh, almost similar to the shock they had in the, after uh, Mexico's uh, default in uh, uh, 1982. Uh, there's a, que a question of, uh, can they really collect? Is there a reality? And they realized that uh, so much of the uh, financialization in the United States was not even based on interest rates, but based on gambling, on derivatives, on bets as to whether uh, interest rates would go up and down, whether capital uh, prices, stock prices, and real estate prices would go up and down. Uh, that the whole character of investment called for an entirely new generation of investment managers and uh, uh, this uh, new generation was, uh, as we've discussed, uh, financially oriented, not industrially oriented. Exactly. And so, you know, uh, uh, so what we has now, uh, I should say that we've already uh, now we've gone for more than an hour and we've only dealt with question one. And I still want to say one final set of things about question one. So what we're going to do is answer question two in the next show. But for now, let me bring this conclusion, uh, this discussion to a conclusion by saying uh, a couple of things. So what we've done is we've tried to show that what what's what's seen as this period of sort of, you know, easy dollar dominance after 1971 is has been a heavily managed process but also a process in which american attempts to try to manage the system in order to keep the dollar going have been full of contradictions they have had their ups and downs and now we are uh, moving into a period of serious reckoning because on the one hand the federal reserves uh, capacity to generate asset bubbles and to keep money flowing into the united states is being exhausted Moreover, and this is the first thing I want to say, and that is that the fact that these asset bubbles now exist and that the bulk of the wealth of rich people in the United States depends on these asset bubbles means that the Federal Reserve is now caught in a bind. Because on the one hand, these asset bubbles are necessary for keeping the dollar's value high, etc. cetera. Uh, but on the other hand, dealing with inflation will require increasing interest rates to an extent where this will burst these asset bubbles. So the Federal Reserve has a choice between what's called monetary stability and what's called financial stability. This is what we argued in our episode on inflation and also which I argued in this article that I wrote entitled Vectors of Inflation. So, Paul, if you may just want to show slide 11. Um, so, uh, basically, the idea is that... Um, in this, uh, 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 the Federal Reserve uh, can, uh, can, you know, either way, both of the, you know, if inflation goes high, the dollar's value will suffer. If the 
if the uh, uh, asset bubbles are burst, the dollar's value will suffer. So the uh, Federal Reserve is caught in a uh, between a rock and a hard place. So um, let me just now conclude conclude by saying the final thing I want to say about this long history of dollar boosting, which has consistently focused on denying the contradictions of the dollar system. Because you see, throughout this period, um, since the 1960s, the rest of the world has complained that the United States has been living beyond its means. So uh, as early as 1961, as gold was flowing out and a gold pool had been necessary, we discussed this in the previous episode, had been necessary to back the dollar with adequate gold. This is when you first hear the first denial that the dollar, uh, that the United States was living beyond it, its means. And in response to this, the United States said that uh, on the one hand, the gold pool was going to ensure that the dollar would be backed by gold, paying no attention to the fact that the money, the gold in the gold pool did not belong to the United States. And then going on to say, uh, and I'm quoting here from the economic report of the president. Meanwhile, the world should not doubt that the dollars invest, doubt the dollar's international investment position. So this is the first time that the, the in international investment position of the United States is brought into the discourse. And the economic report of the president continues. After all, uh, U.S. non-gold assets show that the nation is not living beyond its means. Rather, its means are steadily increasing. At the end of the 1960s, the U.S. government owned foreign assets totaling $21 billion, in addition to gold holdings of $18 billion. Of course, they had been much bigger before. And to quote further, and U.S. citizens owed $50 billion in assets abroad. These claim on uh, U.S. claim on foreigners, the economic report claimed, gave a, quote, basic long run strength to the dollar, unquote, even though some of these claims were private and long term and could not be quickly mobilized. Now, by 2001, you have a very different scenario. The U.S. international investment position has turned negative. It has moved from an accumulated surplus of less than 10% of GDP in the late 70s to a deficit of nearly 20% of GDP in 2001. These are statistics from the economic report of the president of 2003. And the economic report also admitted that the debt could not increase without limit. Now, what was the U.S. administration response to this? So now the U.S. administration is scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of ideas that could justify the U.S. being a fit destination for the world's capital, because by now the casino had been open. So now it says that the U.S. is, quote, far from the point at which servicing the international debt becomes an onerous burden, not least because until last year, more investment income was generated by the U.S., uh, by U.S. foreign investment in foreign countries than by foreign investments inside the U.S. So they are now saying that, uh, the and, and by the way, uh, you can see the U.S. international investment position in this slide number 12. Paul, please uh, show us slide number 12. This was the plan already in the 1960s and 70s, uh, that uh, America would buy uh, the uh, highest profit uh, European and uh, third world uh, sectors, and uh, they would recycle the money by buying treasury securities. So America exactly. would owe low interest on treasury securities, make a killing on what it uh, bought from their uh, 
privatization of infrastructure into buying out their commanding heights, their leading companies. That was exactly. very explicitly said in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, and you see here that ever since the, the complaint was made, which is the beginning of this line, you see that the United States international investment position has continued to slide. But now they are pointing to the income they are able to make from the rest of the world. But how much, you know, how much of this slide, uh, 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 you know, how much... You know, if the if, if the international investment position keeps sliding, then uh, at what point will the income from this money from these investments also cease to be higher than the income the U.S. has to pay, particularly in a regime of high interest rates? In fact, in 2005, Paul Volcker actually said, we as a nation, we are consuming and investing about 6% more than we are producing. And this cannot continue. Already by this time, the United States was absorbing about 80% of the net uh, uh, world's, you know, of the world's capital. So essentially, and then at the same time, the current account deficit was becoming an increasing concern. And again, the United States government responds, first of all, by calling the current account deficit a capital account surplus, which is just a different way of looking at things. And by relabeling things, they were not going to solve any underlying problem. So essentially, uh, uh, and, 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 and so, uh, 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 and they say that we have a capital account surplus because of low and declining US saving, high growth compared to other advanced industrial countries. In this period, US growth was bumping along the bottom of, uh, uh, you know, bumping along the bottom line, so to speak, uh, and high productivity growth. Again, this is completely fictional and a more favorable investment climate. The only true thing about this was they referred to financial market size, though not efficiency. And finally, they have, of course, also attributed to, to the dollar's international role. And now two really smart Alec American economists come along and say, propose their theory of dark matter. Uh, so now, what is this theory of dark matter? They said that, you know, if um, Americans are earning more from their investment, then their investment is actually greater than what it says it is, because that's what it shows. This is the dark matter that you cannot see, which is essentially much like Alan Greenspan back in the late 1990s, claiming that the stock market rising was a result of a productivity miracle. And you say, you ask Mr. Greenspan exactly how, what is the evidence of the productivity miracle? And he would say, it's the stock market. So this is completely circular reasoning. So this is the way in which the dollar's uh, uh, very contradictory, problematic world role has, uh, has been naturalized or has been sought to be naturalized. But we are now in increasingly looking at the end of that system. And uh, so we've taken a long time discussing just this uh, penultimate question. So in the last, in the next episode, uh, Michael and I will discuss the final uh, uh, question, which is exactly what's going on right now. What is the, what are the dimensions of the crisis of the dollar today? What does it consist in? And uh, what can we expect in the future? So thanks very much for your patience. We've gone on longer this time, but we clearly could have said a lot more even, I know. So uh, I hope this has been helpful and we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you.